Thank you very much. Um, and no, it's a pleasure for me to be here in this kind of informal setting. Um, and uh, I sort of uh, wanted to talk with you about uh, some aspect of this uh, era which is really new. And feel free to stop me at any time to ask me a question. And uh, um, I want to start uh, by saying one thing, that when we talk about China and Africa and the media, usually most of the attention uh, go to China and very little attention goes to Africa. It's seen as China's this big, very influential new players that is transforming the balances of power on the continent. And there is very little attention of what actually African governments, African journalists, African medias are doing. So I just want to, just to get a sense of uh, your understanding of, of certain topics, I just want to start with a, with a very simple question of, uh, when you think about African media and African communication, what, what is it that comes to mind? Radio, right? Facebook and Twitter, great. Couple of others. Interesting. Now, this is very interesting for me as well, because in different audiences, yesterday, for example, the thing that came to mind to many people was Nollywood, was like um, the, the cinema in Nigeria. All the soap operas are producing in Nigeria. It seems that that was a great thing. But, uh, and actually, the, the, the image that is coming out from here is not very different from what uh, um, for some aspect that I would like to touch uh, to start with, uh, and which is about innovation in Africa. When I started looking at uh, the new media and the new technology um, in, uh, in an African context, uh, the kind of a buzzword was digital divide. The idea is uh, the world is growing very rapidly. In the US there is a new economy and we have to bring these tools to African people so they could also leverage development in different ways. So the idea was uh, what wasn't possible uh, with other media is now possible because of the internet and we have to make sure that as many people as possible have access to the internet. So the idea was transferring innovation from centers of innovation to African continent. These pictures, uh, it's, it's quite different. In the past few years, we started having um, cases like M-Pesa. M-Pesa is the mobile money transfer system that was started in Kenya with the support of DFID, but mostly um, through local ingenuity, and very rapidly has become the most successful way to transfer money in the country, and is spreading very rapidly across the continent and also beyond the continent. The other example is Ushahidi. Ushahidi is a platform for crisis response that was created in Kenya in 2007 in the aftermath of the elections. This election led to violence, ethnic violence, and the responses of the media were to shut down and not report on what was going on. This created panic among the population, and some Kenyan software developers decided to create a platform for allowing people with their mobile phone to text in so that the cases of violence could be plotted on a map and people could know actually what was going on. This was started in Kenya. Very quickly, it became a kind of international success. It was deployed. The two most, most notable cases are Japan doing the earthquake, and uh, Haiti during the earthquake. And I'm pretty sure, I haven't had time to check this morning, but even right now in the Philippines, someone would be thinking about using Ushahidi uh, to do this, uh, uh, this kind of mapping and know what is going on. So this is just to give you a sense that uh, things in Africa are changing. It's not this space where the newcomers is gonna come with uh, completely different ideas of, of the media. Um, it's uh, a very crowded market. I was in, um, in China at Tsinghua University um, a month ago with um, the leading journalist, uh, the leading African journalist of Al Jazeera, which is called Mohamed Hado. And uh, he's from Kenya and he has a Somali background. And he was saying, he was reminding in his childhood uh, how the whole country, the whole of Somalia was stopping when BBC was broadcasting. At five o'clock, uh, the whole country 
would just was listening to the radio, as he said, uh, because there was the only example of uh, independent media that they could have access to. Right now, the situation is very different. Uh, you have CCTV Africa, and I will tell a few things about it later on. Uh, you have Al Jazeera, I'm sure most of you know it, uh, the usual BBC, Press TV, the Iranian one, uh, and Voice of America. But again, and this is just to provide you a snapshot, uh, uh, let's not forget the local media. Um, the two buildings on the right are the two most impressive buildings in Kenya, as far as I know. And the one on the far right with the two towers uh, is uh, the building of the Nation Media Group, which is the largest media group in Kenya. The second one on the left uh, is uh, the building of the Standard Media Group. So in places like Kenya, but increasingly so in Uganda or in Tanzania, the media are becoming one of the most profitable businesses. And the one on the left is a different type of building. In the title that I gave to the talk, it was between hard and soft power. What is China doing? How is China soft power shaped? The one on the left is the building of the African Union. It was built as a gift from China to the continent, and where for the first time in the 50th anniversary of the African Union, all uh, leaders from Africa met. So these were speaking loads uh, about uh, the relation between China and Africa. And there is this sense uh, soft power doesn't go exclusively through the media or through cultural exchanges. Uh, in the case of China, a lot of soft power also goes through infrastructure, something that is visible for the old population and not just for the elites. Uh, a final point, uh, the new media are extremely exciting and, uh, and they are changing things dramatically. But China is a continent where even the traditional media are growing very fast uh, and are being uh, profitable. This is, uh, this report is from 2011, but the data are a bit old. But what it shows is basically that uh, the circulation of newspapers, of traditional media, in Africa is growing at 5%, when in the case of the US is going down 10%. So, so investing even in the, in the old media in, uh, in the continent uh, um, is still uh, a profitable business. So what is China doing in, uh, in this space? Um, well, China is not new to Africa. And uh, actually, as part of uh, the narrative uh, that is being uh, supported by Chinese media and Chinese authorities, uh, there is this very old relationship that goes back centuries. Uh, and uh, this is sort of quite difficult to prove that it was substantial because it was uh, just uh, a limited number of exchanges. Uh, but um, it's still something that is uh, being being hammered and created as a, new, as a new way to understand the relationship. The media sector is the newest aspect of the scholarship on China and Africa. Uh, but China and Africa, the scholarship on China and Africa is relatively new anyways. And as any new debate, that tends to be like the optimist and the pessimist. So there are those who look at China as a benevolent partner, some of these, and um, uh, Dambisa Moyo, famous economist, she was here in, uh, in Oxford, where at St. Anthony's, Firoze Manji, also here from Oxford, but uh, more NGO type, or uh, China's a threat. I think the best book on China-Africa relationships still is the one you see on the right, uh, The Dragon Gift uh, by Deborah Brodingham. One interesting thing that uh, should be remarked about uh, China-Africa relations is uh, how, in a way, they are the same 
as they used to be when they started in dramatic ways in the 1960s, but they're also completely different. What I have here is just three different quotes from Prime Minister Chu Enlai. He went to a tour of Africa in 1964. He was the first Chinese leader to tour Africa. And the words that he was using, he created a kind of a list of points that should inform China-Africa relations are the words that are still used today. Ideas like equality and mutual benefit, uh, they're still in policy documents uh, that are um, being released uh, in, um, since 2003 when the, FOC, uh, the Forum of China-Africa Cooperation was started. Uh, the idea of sovereignty and independence. At the same time, they're extremely different. The third quote uh, illustrated different, a particular aspect of China in the 1960s uh, that has disappeared dramatically from uh, popular debate. The idea that China is supporting uh, the socialist revolution in Africa. China was a strong supporter of uh, countries like Ghana or Angola. They were fighting in order to free themselves from colonialism, but also to embrace uh, Marxism. This uh, is not part of the, of, uh, of the official uh, dialogue anymore. And in the media, the history is somehow similar. It's a hot topic. It's, uh, interesting to talk about uh, China-Africa relations in the media sector today. But as you can see from the left, uh, China has tried to have its voice heard uh, out there for quite a long time. China Radio International was started in 1941. Later on, it opened its English, uh, uh, English channel. Xinhua, the China's uh, news agency in, 19, in the 1950s, opened the first bureaus uh, in, uh, in Africa. And then CCTV9 uh, in, 20, in 2000. But what distinguishes this first attempt to influence the, um, the international, uh, the image of, of China internationally, and the, and the most recent one is the leverage and the dimension and the resources that China has been able to, uh, to mobilize uh, in the past 10 years. Um, I will talk later about CCTV Africa. CCTV Africa is uh, the uh, initiative of Chinese state broadcaster CCTV on the African continent. It was opened on the 11th of January 2012, and it immediately became the largest operation of an international TV broadcaster in Africa, immediately, overnight. And uh, it counts something like 120 journalists, working in the office in Nairobi and across Africa, and has resources that no other international media has been able to mobilize so far. So the BBC or Voice of America are feeling the heat. And, uh, and even a big player like Al Jazeera, with a lot of money, can't compete on the kind of reporting that the Africa is doing. Also in terms of a model, we hear a lot about censorship in China. But in 2011, China became the, large, the country with the largest internet population. And uh, developed be a quite a unique model of, uh, of the internet. And then, uh, and I will talk more about it later, China has also become the largest lender of African governments in the telecommunication sector. And I will go more into the details uh, when I talk about a couple of case studies. So the problem that I, um, I would like to highlight is that uh, China is growing dramatically in the media sector, in the tele telecommunication sector. What is not uh, growing is the understanding of the ways in which this is happening. It's happening for sure. How we analyze it, uh, that's not that sure. And uh, so far, and we are trying our best as academics to, to change the, 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 the rule of the games a little bit, uh, but so far those who have been leading the debate uh, are think tanks, uh, gray literature, 
policymakers. And here is just an example of a report that was published a few years ago, but it just uh, illustrates what is the tone of the debate. The debate is very much uh, uh, at this level. So I'm just reading it for you because I, I guess some of you are far away. The Chinese government seeks to fundamentally reshape much of the world media in its own image, away from a watchdog stance uh, towards the government to one where the government's interests uh, are the paramount concern in deciding what to disseminate. A great deal of emphasis is placed on forming alliances that are anti-Western and on promoting anti-Western media model to combat what the Chinese regularly portray as part of an imperialist plan to distort the truth. The problem here is that the, the assumption is as much as countries like the US or the UK, when they provided media assistance, they also tried to encourage people to adopt the value that characterizes their own media system. China is going to do the same thing. But there are a number of fallacies, and maybe this is more for the conversation that we have. First of all, there is nothing like a Western media model. I'm from Italy, and even if we take Berlusconi outside of the picture, as we try to do regularly, but it's not working very well, and uh, the Italian media system can't be more different than the British media system. Just to be very crude, uh, in Italy, the idea, the links between journalism and freedom of expression is that the journalist should allow a plurality of voices to compete in the public arena, and he's sort of uh, the referee, the arbiter in this, uh, in this space. As far as I know the, the media in the UK, of course pluralism is extremely important, uh, but it, there is an idea of journalists sitting above politics uh, and being the one that is running the show and is deciding who has to call the shot and who not. You know, these, if, you look at the, if you look at the media in the US, uh, there are uh, still different ideas of uh, how to regulate this different concept. So, the Western media model doesn't really exist, but, uh, and this is an important point, and maybe Roger will, uh, will, um, will uh, fit in that, uh, uh, a lot of Chinese academics and Chinese scholars are obsessed with the, Chinese, with the Western media model. There is continuous talk about the West is doing this, the Western media are doing this, and the Western, but there is no understanding that there is nothing like the Western media. And this has to be somehow unpacked and understood in different ways. So um, I promised that I didn't want to present a paper today. I wanted to have uh, a kind of a broad understanding, and, uh, but uh, this is the more paperly-like. I will try to keep it broad and not, uh, and not become too, too narrow. So what we are trying to do is, uh, together with a number of scholars from um, Africa, from China, and from the UK, we met a few years ago. And uh, we tried to define a common framework, a framework that is broad enough uh, to understand uh, what is China doing in Africa, in the media sector in Africa. And with a series of trial and error, we came up uh, with this framework. It's nothing too complicated. It's just a way to unpack uh, the assumptions that I mentioned earlier. If China is behaving as Western donors or Western countries have behaved so far, and say, maybe this is not the case. And so we divided this framework in three parts. The idea of a persuader, which means simply trying to um, persuade, to convince, uh, uh, to win the, heart, the hearts and minds uh, of population uh, we communicate with uh, or we enter into a relationship with. The idea of a partner that is very much at the center of uh, China's uh, uh, presentation of itself to the world, but here is mostly in uh, um, as an as a economic and financial partner, as a new lender that is providing the resources to African governments and African actors to rely on ideas. And the third point is uh, as a prototype. 
as we said earlier, there is nothing like a model. There is a lot of resistance in China now. There is nothing like a Chinese media model. It's just a, a mix of different strategies that have been used at different times. But we can call it a prototype. Is uh, other countries out there in Africa interested in some of the elements of a characterized Chinese media system and a Chinese internet? And uh, what I want to do, hopefully quickly, is uh, run you through a couple of case studies. <coughs> the first one is, uh, um, is a comparison between two countries, Ethiopia and Kenya, which are uh, neighbors, uh, but are very, very different, especially different in the ways in which they approach the media and telecommunication. And both, both countries are countries that recently, especially after 2006, uh, saw an incredible presence of China in these new sectors, in the media and in the tele telecommunication sector. Um, I won't go much into the politics of the two countries. Uh, Ethiopia, let's say, is an authoritarian regime uh, which had elections, but these were sort of staged for international consumption. It had this incident in 2005, uh, uh, the most open election in the history of the country, but also the most violent. Uh, people taking the street, it was a kind of Arab Spring before the Arab Spring. Uh, people willing to gain voice uh, in a government that hadn't given voice to them in the past. And in the case of the internet, Ethiopia is really interesting because it's the only country in Africa which completely controls the internet. The internet is the, in the hand of the state, and even Eritrea, which is uh, a, even more authoritarian countries than Ethiopia, um, has three different internet service providers. At the same time, the Ethiopian government has spent loads of money, hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, to use new technology to improve uh, uh, e-governance uh, and improve service delivery. In the case of Kenya, the image can't be more different. In the case of politics, the troubled democracy, also with problematic election in 2007, is a donor darling. And uh, when you look at the internet, it's been among the first countries in Africa to liberalize. And uh, liberalize in a very open way. Most of the policies of uh, um, shaping internet governance in Kenya was the first country, actually, to have a local uh, chapter for the internet governance. And um, having NGOs, uh, and uh, the, the, um, the private sector on board. China, at some point, uh, came uh, to play an important role in both countries, and I will tell you later the details. Uh, but one interesting thing that China has not been doing in these countries uh, is trying to promote an alternative idea of the internet. It's very difficult to find, uh, especially in, at the international level, uh, any articulation of a different conception of the internet uh, that could be used uh, by other countries to shape uh, their own uh, um, uh, information societies. Uh, it's not there yet. I'm not saying they will never be, because things in China change very rapidly. And, but so far, it has been absent from the public debate. Very different this, uh, the, um, case uh, for the United States. Uh, we were discussing with Amalia earlier on uh, um, about uh, this uh, big meeting that was in Dubai about uh, internet governance uh, and uh, um, international telecommunication. There was this big campaign trying to shape uh, the debate as a debate between the free world and the free internet uh, and uh, the world of censors. And the free world was led by the US. Uh, the world was censored not by China, but by an alliance of Russia and China. When you look at the details, it was much more complicated than that. But the fact that China doesn't talk about the internet doesn't mean that it doesn't do things that are very influential for shaping the internet in these countries. So, um, I won't spend too much time into the numbers, but uh, in the case of Ethiopia, as I said, Ethiopia is the only, the Ethiopian government is the only monopolist uh, in Africa, monop um, telecommunication monopolist in Africa, and uh, there are no cases, as far as I know, 
of uh, a country in Africa managing to expand access to the telecommunication and to the internet in a regime of monopoly? The answer to that was either liberalizing uh, or asking money to the Chinese government. And that's what happened. It was the largest loan in the history of telecommunication in Africa. If you sum the two, it's $3 billion. China has allowed Ethiopia to continue on its vision of a contained and controlled information space. In the case of Kenya, the picture is much more different. Kenya is a very open and liberalized space. And China has just stepped in as one of the many players. ZTE and Huawei were the two telecom giants are very competitive on, on the market, and they've been hired both on commercial and state contracts. And, but at the same time, the Chinese government has provided resources to the Kenyan government to expand access. So the result in both cases is empowering the states and giving more resources as compared to other actors in society. And finally, when we look at the idea of a, of a prototype, the responses are very different. What I'm showing on the left is the first quote is from uh, one of the most influential figures in the Ethiopian government. Uh, and this was taken from a WikiLeaks cable uh, and of a conversation he had with the, with the um, American uh, ambassador at the time, saying that Ethiopia needs the China model to inform the Ethiopian people. Uh, if you read on the right, uh, the, the former minister of information in Kenya is showing a very different picture. And uh, we are not interested, we are a liberal state, uh, and we are not, not interested in different models of, uh, um, of information society. But what is most interesting for me, and I will try to reflect more on that aspect, uh, is the second, uh, the second course, we are representative of, uh, of a larger picture. China is very much seen uh, as uh, a partner that can be used uh, in hard negotiation, a friend you can step back uh, and rely to. Uh, when other options are closed. And what is creating this is creating a greater breeding space uh, for a lot of government on the continent. In this case, it depends on who are these governments. Um, are governments that are representative of their own people, are governments that are, have been elected uh, in means that are not recognized as legitimate or so forth. But what is happening is, is definitely creating uh, this new space for engagement. And um, it's difficult. I, I would like to have uh, um, a discussion with you, because I, I haven't decided yet what, uh, what are the conclusion of, uh, of, these, uh, um, of this presence. On the one hand, uh, and the title maybe is helping me a little bit, because uh, um, the idea is uh, between a hard and soft power. What we can see is China has not used uh, narratives and not used discourses uh, to change its uh, understanding of the internet in places like Afri Africa and all over the world. What it's done is providing resources uh, to government in order to develop their own visions. But the result of this, uh, both in places like Ethiopia and in places like Kenya, has been the reinforcement of some aspect of their information society that resonates uh, with China's idea of the information society. I go more into the details. In Ethiopia, the blogs have been censored for a long time, and Voice of America, the international broadcaster, have been jammed. And up to 2010, the Ethiopian government said, this is not actually happening. You're just accusing us of doing things that are not true. In 2010, for the first time, the prime minister said, we're jamming them, so what? After two years, they passed a new law. This is called the Telecom Fraud Proclamation Law, which is basically transferring uh, uh, terrorism online. People can per be persecuted for terrorism charges also for what they do online. Um, in the case of Kenya, there were elections recently. And uh, 
What uh, many international and local observers lamented is that Kenya is sliding from a democracy into a peaceocracy. Everybody wants peace. Everybody wants uh, to ensure that there are the elements there for growing peacefully and steadily. And this is also affecting how people debate online. There's a lot of debate on uh, restraining hate speech, containing the ability of people to speak. Uh, so in a way, I can't say that there is a causation between uh, the hard power that uh, China is mobilizing in order to have certain results, but this is happening. Probably this is a kind of a global uh, shift towards a, a more contained idea of the information society, a sovereign idea of the information society, a more peaceful idea of the information society. And what China is doing is simply fueling certain aspect of it. Uh, and, uh, and there are fewer people fueling other aspects of that. The result is uh, Kenya and Ethiopia are looking a little bit more like China than they used to do in the past. How is this happening? I'm not really sure. Um, the second bit and the final bit um, what I think is just interesting, this is just uh, to, to share with you some, some experiences that I had, is the experience that I had at CCTV Africa. Um, one thing that I forgot to say is uh, another way to break the misunderstanding um, about what is going on uh, is very basic, is just asking the people who are part of this debate. What is, most of the literature that's coming on China and Africa right now is either theoretical or based on very abstract data. Very few people are interviewing, uh, as I had the opportunity to do and others are doing right now, uh, the very journalists that are working with CCTV Africa and asking them what they think their role is. Uh, and the same thing can be said for Huawei and ZTE when they operate uh, in countries like Kenya and Ethiopia. So I told you earlier what happened. CCTV Africa is the largest international TV broadcaster broadcasting for Africa and from Africa. Uh, it's the only one providing one and a half hours every single day um, of reporting on the continent. BBC Focus on Africa is just half an hour. The worry of many was that uh, it was just going to be used as a way to portray China to African audiences. If you look, uh, there has been a research coming out, uh, if you look at the, uh, if you do a content analysis of uh, what is being said in the news channel, uh, just 5% is in China. All the rest is about Africa. All the rest is uh, information, daily information from the continent for African audiences. And one thing that uh, Chinese journalists are really passionate about is the idea of positive reporting. So not just telling the bad news, but telling the good news. And uh, this is easier to say than to practice in Africa, because in a way, uh, China has to compete with a lot of very aggressive players like Al Jazeera. Al Jazeera is nothing about positive reporting, it's more about investigative reporting, supporting the underdog. But one thing that they are somehow succeeding in doing is using this idea of positive reporting to support the idea of Africa rising. Africa has been growing very fast in the past few years. Countries like Ghana are growing at 40% uh, uh, of their GDP every year. And, uh, and China wants to be part of this story, wants to tell the good stories about Africa. But uh, just to wrap up this part on CCTV Africa, a good way to do it is um, uh, using the words of uh, the media scholar linguist, uh, the American linguist George Lakoff. What he said is studied American <coughs> propaganda and uh, American, um, American politics and electoral politics. And uh, he pointed out that when, if I tell you, don't think of an elephant, the first thing that you do, most probably, is try to see the, the trunk of the elephant and then the trunk of the elephant. And this point is to say that when you negate a frame, you evoke a frame. So China, in a way, is sort of stuck in a position where there is awareness that the Chinese media are not the freest media out there. 
and it would be very difficult for them to use their own media to tell a different China story. To say, guys, this is not the real China, this is the real China. And what is happening with CCTV Africa is actually by supporting this idea of Africa rising, so trying to provide a positive image of Africa, are creating new association between China and the Chinese media and Africa, and of being part of this new narrative. Again, I don't know, and this is really my conclusion, and uh, I don't know if this is intentional, uh, or if there is a kind of a, uh, some extremely smart individuals out there that are thinking that uh, is not by directly trying to influence the hearts and minds that China is going to be uh, more respected in, uh, in, uh, in Africa, or it is by creating new association. Positive reporting is not very uh, popular, but uh, if you build on narrative like the Africa Rising narrative, uh, more people will tend to talk positively about, about, about Africa. It would be more difficult to say that uh, uh, Africa is about conflict, is about corruption, and so forth. And the other problem that I have, and it's still a question and not a conclusion, is it seems that China's soft power is of a different kind. It doesn't use many narratives, but it does produce certain results. Again, how is this happening is, uh, is not clear yet, and uh, maybe some of you have some answer. Thank you.